1: This episode of Gen Z is sponsored by Chainalysis. Welcome to Gen Z. Gen Z is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akineni from Vayner3. Welcome to this special episode of Gen C. In this special episode, we are going to be talking to Christopher Polson, who is the Senior Vice President, Business Development, Brand Partnering for Bang & Olufsen. Bang & Olufsen is a historic audio company that makes amazing products really creates these beautifully designed objects that not only are artistic, but perform and function at extremely high level and have recently jumped into the NFT space that we will go over. And in addition, we have Ian Andrews. Ian is the chief marketing officer at Chainalysis. Chainalysis is a pretty fascinating company. They're also a partner of ours, and they focus on sort of potential risk and security within the crypto space, something that I don't think brands think about enough as they're releasing projects. Chainalysis works with banks, governments, and brands to assess potential risk, make sure you're not interacting with compromised wallets as you're doing your drops, and sort of is an advisor to think through security to the entire tech stack of your NFT drop, amongst other things in the crypto space. Chainalysis and Bang & Olufsen partnered together on Bang & Olson's drop to ensure that the drop was being done with security in mind, and we'll talk about how they worked together. So with that, we really hope you enjoy this special episode of Generation Crypto with Bangin' & Olufsen and Chainalysis. Let's get into it. Web3 offers budding opportunities for brands to create more value for their customers, engage fans, and build immersive community. But that doesn't come without its risks. Chainalysis helps Fortune 500 brands better understand and manage the risks in Web3 through proactive assessments, on-chain monitoring, investigations, training, and more, so that they can focus on building a roadmap for long-term growth. Learn more about how Chainalysis can help your company grow in Web3 at Chainalysis.com Gen Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special episode of Gen Z. We are here right now with Ian Andrews, the Chief Marketing Officer at Chainalysis, and Christopher Polson, Senior Vice President, Business Development and Brand Partnering at Bang & Olson. We're going to talk about Bang & Olson's NFT project, which is really exciting. We're going to talk about what Chainalysis does and especially security around the NFT space. I'm super excited to get inside this conversation and learn from both these guys what they're building. And specifically, I think there's a really interesting lane that we can talk about, which I think a lot of brands don't think through, which is how you set up enough kind of security and understanding of who your audience is in the NFT space. Because as we know, crypto can have some challenging folks and we want to kind of let people know there are tools out there that are usable in order to just kind of protect your audience and your brand reputation when you jump into the NFT space. So with that, Christopher, I want to start with you. I would love to just touch on kind of a little bit of your history. How long have you have been at Bang & Olufsen? What you do there. I know B&O has a really storied history. You guys were started in 1925. So you're coming up on your 100th birthday. And it would be great just to like tell the audience a little bit more about the company. And then we will get on to you, Ian.
0: Thanks, Sam. Thanks for the invitation. So yeah, Bang & Olufsen, been around soon for 100 years. And I've been lucky enough to now have be been here for 12 of uh, those. And yeah, really an exciting brand. and. One of the few brands that are sort of standing out in the uh, audio video category, we've always been about only doing the best and continuously seeking to improve. We've done things quite different compared to uh, our peers in the uh, consumer electronic world. And that's because we are approaching this from a luxury category perspective. I've been doing a lot of different roles in Bang & Olufsen during my time here. And uh, my current role is business development including looking at new models, revenue models, and the business model for Bang & Olufsen. And I'm looking after brand collaborations as well. And I think this is also where our DNA collection, which is our NFT project, became super interesting because it was actually a crossing of something we do already combined with the creative economy and what blockchain and Web3 have brought to the table. And um, it is an exciting journey for us and also a steep learning curve for us as a brand. I want to say I'm
1: old enough where I remember kind of these iconic design objects. I used to DJ back in my day and I collected a lot of music equipment. And I just remember Bang & Olsen and Nakamichi were the two brands that everyone wanted to have, you know, in their hi-fi shelf, if you will. I feel like you guys still are sort of front and center. I haven't heard much about Nakamichi in a while, but it feels like when I was, you know, in high school and in college that everyone like wanted the Bang & Olsen turntable. It was the object that was so important. Give us like a couple of sentences just on kind of the idea of design thinking and audio, because I think that not unlike what we deal with in the NFT space, but the idea of kind of status, but also value, and for objects that are just in themselves intrinsically beautiful is such like a lovely part of our lives and makes us feel good, right? Having these special objects in their house right behind you. You were telling us earlier about this re-release of these 1970s turntables in the artwork that's behind you. Yeah, maybe you could just like
0: talk a few minutes on design with Bang & Olufsen. Absolutely, and we are in that intersection between design and music, that's what we're all about. And we've actually, for many decades, worked with external designers to get the outside in perspective and also challenge the status quo. And combining the creative thinking with outsiders, with our internal engineer expertise is is where you get friction, but it's also where you make the impossible possible. And really what I think being super proud of working in the company is if, if you take our strategy, which is named Luxury Timeless Technology, The timelessness is not only the design being relevant year after year, it's also the fact that we are able to create icons that become collectibles. And in particular, the last years and the last decade, we worked a lot with modularity. So being very conscious about circularity and how our products can be relevant for more than one generation. The turntable behind me is actually from 1972 and right now we cannot find enough of those to refurbish compared to demand. So I think that's really what we're trying to do with a broader range of our portfolio to make them modular and make them upgradable, repairability, of course, being high on the agenda. We are not perfect in that sense, but we are very conscious about improving and conscious about that the investment you make into Bang & this is something that then gives you something to enjoy for years. And It almost becomes a ritual with some of our products and remote controls and how you start your day with not using your smartphone, but pressing one button and then you have your favorite radio channel while you enjoy your coffee. And really looking at the experiences around the products is something we pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, so it's a privilege to work with this brand and uh, also the many, both internal and external designers. And actually small anecdote that I sort of enjoy is really that when we started the NFT project, you know, our design studio was really outside their comfort zone because what they do is that they curate to perfection. And the collection we created was a combination of sort of the best from the PFP world where you have a combination of traits. And then we looked at the art collectibles and the task for the design studios was to design 10 traits that would work no matter how they were combined. And um, it turned out to being a challenge really appreciated because it was different and new and a learning and you could do all kinds of materials, right? You could do amber, you could do water, you could do snow and, you know, a playful exercise. But it was also, it struck me that we've always been curating down to the detail, right? And in this case, it was actually letting go, of, you know, a bit of that desire to control every detail, but allowing for the combinations and the playfulness. And I think that, you know, they did a fantastic job. So it was a true pleasure to work with our design studio together with the artists we had as well. You
1: know, Chris the one of the things you highlighted again, especially thinking about the turntable behind you, we're going to get into the DNA collection in a second, but just the fact that even younger generations—I have a daughter—is you know just came into her early twenties. Her and her friends all collect vinyl and they play them on record players. And I think there's something very similar in the idea of collectible culture, both in the device in which they're playing on and albums themselves, which is an appreciation, frankly, of art and craft and artistry that I think is very relevant to the sort of NFT world of today. But first, I want to get into a little conversation here with Ian Andrews. So, Ian. You're the CMO of Chainalysis. Chainalysis is a pretty fascinating company. So I would love to, one, first understand your background prior to coming to Chainalysis. But then also tell us a little bit about what Chainalysis does. And then we'll talk about how you guys are also integrated in this new project.
2: Yeah, for anyone that doesn't know, Chainalysis is a software company in the cryptocurrency space. We build tools used by large financial institutions, almost all of the crypto native businesses out there as well as government agencies all around the world so financial regulators central banks law enforcement who are all attempting to make the crypto ecosystem operate safely securely for all of us that participate in the ecosystem we're about 900 employees today we have well over 1000 customers globally in about 75 countries around the world so truly anyone that you think about working in the crypto space is probably working with chain analysis in some capacity which is pretty exciting Tell us just a little bit about what
1: you're doing before you came to Chainalysis.
2: Yeah, you know, I was not in the crypto space. I joined the company in January of 21. So it's been an amazingly fun ride. Uh, kind of year one was up only, as they like to say in the industry. Year two, last year was a little bumpier in terms of the experience. But before this, I've always been an emerging tech. So the previous nine years, I helped spin a company called Pivotal out of EMC and VMware. We took that public back in 2018 and eventually actually sold it back to VMware at the end of 2019. So I was in the middle of the pandemic, sitting at home as we all were, and got a call from a recruiter who said, hey, you should really look at this company Chainalysis. They're small, but they're on a exciting growth trajectory. And initially my reaction was, ooh, crypto. I don't know a lot about this space. I don't have deep technical expertise here. I don't really know the ecosystem. I was intimidated. You know, I, I describe my knowledge at the time as, you know, I read headlines when the price goes way up, the price goes way down, or somebody goes to jail. And that's my level of depth. But very quickly found, you know, an incredible team of people, our CEO, Michael Groninger and Jonathan Levin, his co-founder, you know, they got into this space very early on. Michael actually helped launch one of the earliest exchanges, Kraken, and ran operations there for a number of years before deciding to spin out and start Chainalysis. And during that time, he was also a contributor to the core Bitcoin code base. So we draw our roots from you know the very early days of crypto and Michael's desire to see this be adopted on a massive scale globally, realized we had this gap of trust in blockchains. And yeah, this really came to a head, I think, for the first time around the Mt. Gox hack. If you remember back to twenty fourteen. So many people in crypto had funds held at this Japanese exchange, and then kind of overnight, it became clear that most of those funds actually weren't there. That was really one of the first projects that Chainalysis worked on, was helping figure out what had happened with Mt. Gox, and then later got involved with Silk Road, you know, that darknet marketplace, and some of the aftermath of the takedown of Silk Road and the investigations. That was sort of the starting point of the company kind of launching into being the experts at understanding what's actually happening on the blockchain.
1: Well, I know we're going to talk a little bit about some more dark web stuff later because you and I were doing some fun conversation on our prep, but I want to go back to Christopher and Bang & Olson. There is a tremendous amount of luxury brands that have come into the space. We just saw recently the LVMH trunk drop that's going on as we speak. Gucci has been involved, Tiffany, you guys. So I'm just interested, Christopher, in your thoughts on audiences that are coming into kind of the luxury NFT space. You guys dropped, I think it was 1,925 different objects. They were kind of based on some of like the most sort of crushworthy products that you guys sell, things that people really want in their homes. And then, as you mentioned before, you kind of allowed yourselves to be free of the physical constraints of what you could do with these. You also partnered with some amazing artists I know on this drop. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about the kind of couple of objects that you guys selected, why you selected those, and then who were the artists that you partnered with and What was your thinking in working with those artists?
0: When we looked at this, of course, we also looked at the luxury industry. And I think what struck us is that Web3 is really the, the metaverse for that matter, is sort of an endless aisle of opportunity to express yourself. And we are a very expressive brand. And you also will see that with other luxury companies engaged in Web3. And it's really that opportunity to create expressions. And for us, it's also turned into the combination of Digital and physical experiences, which is something we're very focused on. And actually, it's our next step in the roadmap to bring a physical product that's token gated to the market. But when we sort of discussed conceptually what to do, it, there was really a very clear direction from the beginning that we want to continue doing what we've always done, which is really working with artists and musicians. And Web3 has created an opportunity for creators to also create businesses. And we wanted to embrace the create economy and have basically structured the project together with three visual artists, namely Thomas Lin Pedersen, who is a generative artist from Denmark, and Shewan Wong out of Singapore and Hakatao, an OG in the space, where we wanted to create artistic expressions to our products together with them. And we actually do that in Web2 as well. But terms are different here. It's a different model. And we then combined this with two artists, or actually three. but. Uh, one of the uh, contributors is Kamatik and Lucas, who jointly have created music tracks, and then RAC, who's also been active in the space and also doing uh, visual work. What's clear with talking to all of them was sort of an immediate logic for working with us and sort of doing the concept. And no secret, we learned a lot from all of these, given their presence in the space. And that's also how it goes in the projects we do. That's not with three, right? We are collaborating also to basically find new capabilities, whether it's craftsmanship, whatever it is, and taking the best from two worlds. And that's what this project has been for us. It's not something new in that sense. It's something we've always done, but we're doing it a new playing field. And um, we're very happy with the outcome and feel it represents who we are, where we're coming from, but also it points into a future direction, into the unknown, where there is a level of exploration also. We have launched our first digital-only product called Bioverse Alpha, which is one of the four products we've designed the NFT program around. There's four products in total. And correctly pointed out by you, it's the biogram behind me, our turntable, and then it's two iconic speakers where one is representing the present and one the future in terms of technology. And then it's Bioverse Alpha, which is really the boombox of the future. And the next step is to offer all the holders the opportunity to acquire an exclusive A9 speaker with artwork of the artist you have for your NFT. And um, this is a limited edition and it's only available for those holding the DNA NFT and also special complementary terms. And uh, yeah, we're quite excited by that part. And that's also what we're looking at right now is actually doing more digital, where we combine digital and physical. So,
1: Christopher, one of the things that I was interested in was, I believe, something that you mentioned, which is that. A lot of the folks who collected the DNA project, this was like the first NFT in their wallet. And that's something I think we've seen pretty much across the board with sort of high end products that they're bringing in different users coming in, because I think that within the luxury space, you already have people who value design and kind of curated objects as something that they should be collecting. Right. You mentioned it's really hard to get the turntable behind you. And so I want to think a little bit more about, you know, were you guys surprised to see that the collectors were more non-Web3? like Were you initially targeting a Web3 audience, the folks who were already collecting NFTs and PFPs? Or was it part of the project in design that you actually wanted to
0: bring new people into the space? It started out with a relatively high share of wallets new to the space, where this was the first collected NFT. Then it has evolved into having a higher share of holders of two to 10 NFTs, which is the majority of of the population now. And I know some of those are first-timers who've then gone further into the program. So yeah, actually we were a bit surprised. We expected this to be less than 5% and mainly given the nature of and the maturity, the user-friendliness, the things you have to go through in order to create a wallet and connect. And we sort of deliberately wanted to stay true to as much as possible with three ethos in terms of how we constructed this program. We wanted to do on own minting side. We managed to make the collection so complex that it consisted of six smart contracts that meant that there was also with the timeline we were operating with, we needed to find solutions to manage that. And we ended up with a non-custodian setup. And that's where chain analysis came in as a valuable partner for us. And um, yeah, really, I think it is difficult, I would say. And it's also It's a massive training exercise and, you know, just being able to walk into a store today and then acquire an NFT doesn't really work like that. It's still like, you know, desktop is still the best tool to do your mending on your laptop and so forth, right? So a lot has happened since we started the project and um, it is evolving fast, but I think it needs to go, you know, a bit more mainstream in interface before we really see this pickup. And it's also something we're looking at because it could be in the future that you actually acquire a digital token when you buy a product but you may not be aware that this is built on blockchain. So a lot of things are moving, and we're looking at the entire value chain in terms of what blockchain can do for our company. But we were surprised by the share positively, but also you know, had hope for more existing customers would sort of join, train, and we've had events to basically invite more people in and hold by the hand, but it takes a lot of hand-holding if you're not already in the space. So that's a learning. Yeah, the UX layer is still being developed within Web3, I think, as we all know, we talk about that a lot. Ian, I want to turn
1: to you for a little bit here, because I think within the NFT space, the Web3 space, we spend a lot of time, I think, trying to educate the consumer that they need to protect their digital assets, right? They've spent, you know, a good amount of money on a Bang & NFT. We want to make sure it stays in their wallet, it doesn't get hacked, all of that. But I think what a lot of brands don't recognize is that there's a security layer that should also be starting when you're conceiving of your product as a brand. And we spoke a bit about this, but I would love for you to kind of talk about how Chainalysis works with brands themselves to sort of, in essence, think through a security mindset on how you're designing your project and your drop. Because I think that is something that is probably underutilized right now for most
2: brands. Great question, Sam. I mean, I think if you look at many of our customers, they're financial institutions, right? Their business may be cryptocurrency specific, but a large exchange and an equities brokerage house You know, they don't really look that different in terms of organizational structure and expertise. They have big compliance teams. They have security teams. They have fraud teams. I would imagine, Christopher confirm. you know, none of those things really exist at B&O prior to starting this project because that's, you just don't need that if you're operating a technology company with a retail kind of delivery mechanism. And so suddenly in this world of NFTs, you are very much living in a financial ecosystem right you're accepting ethereum likely as a payment you're operating smart contracts and so that then brings a level of risk that i think a lot of our customers are rightly concerned about and want to make sure that they have the right visibility into who's actually buying these nfts where the funds coming from and also understanding the state of the market so not so much from a security perspective but like you just asked Christopher, who's buying these things? Are they our existing customers? Are they, you know, NFT DGENs who buy, you know, complete collections or are these people that are, you know, kind of entering the market for the first time because they're excited by what B&O is doing. And so all of that analysis is what Chainalysis is able to bring to our customers in the space. And just to go one
1: level deeper on that, the idea of how brands should also think from a reputation perspective, That maybe that like some of their holders, actually, you don't want holding your collection because those wallets themselves could be sanctioned or compromised. So how do you guys look at kind of the on the ingestion point, right? As new folks are coming in, are there ways to sort of safeguard your brand in terms of maybe not letting every collector collect?
2: This is one of the amazing things about blockchain is you have this transparent and public record of a particular wallet's entire transaction history. And with the right tools, it becomes possible to understand who else that wallet has interacted with. I mean, this is what chain analysis has done better than anyone is connect real world entities to on-chain activity. And so suddenly I can realize, oh, well, this buyer has actually all of their funds seem to have originated at a darknet market. You know, that may be an address that I choose to block. Or in the case of you brought up sanctions, I mean, this has become a huge topic in the crypto world over the last 18 months as you know, the U.S. Treasury and some of the international organizations have upped their attention on cryptocurrency as a means to kind of move money under the radar of the traditional financial system. There's strict liability for interacting with a sanctioned wallet, meaning you have criminal exposure and so a lot of our customers want to make sure that an address that's been sanctioned is blocked outright, not able to interact with the platform. And our technology gives our customers that as an API call. So in the moment where you're connecting your wallet and you're attempting to mint, that's validated back against the chain analysis data set. And we make sure that you know, the brand is protected and you don't facilitate an interaction with somebody that you'd not like to do business with. And just so our listeners understand,
1: when we were doing our prep call, I was sort of surprised to know that there is still such a robust darknet ecosystem. I sort of thought for whatever reason that when they closed the Silk Road, that most of the stuff went away. But it sounded like from what you were telling me that there is still a lot of activity happening in that space. So could you just expand a little bit more on that?
2: The dark web is absolutely very much active and growing. I went and pulled some data on this for you, actually, because I thought never come to a conversation without statistics. Our analysis says in you know 2020 we saw about 2.1 billion in sales through darknet market activity, about three billion in 21, and then it was down in 2022, primarily because of a large takedown of a marketplace called Hydra, that was far and away the largest, a Russian language marketplace where you could buy everything from drugs to stolen identities to weapons and other bad things. But these are fully robust businesses. I often compare them to kind of eBay for all the bad stuff that you would never be able to buy on eBay. They have built-in merchant services for money laundering and fiat cash out. So it's a very real infrastructure and they operate primarily in cryptocurrency.
1: Maybe it's me, but if I was going to start a darknet, I don't think I would name it after a Marvel movie criminal (laughs) organization. Um, (laughs) So Christopher, let's go back for a second, because I think, you know, You guys designed these beautiful, precious objects in real life. You now have these wonderful kind of highly designed digital assets. You mentioned before that there's a physical component. And this is something I think we started to see quite a bit of, the idea of token gating access to exclusive sort of merchandise and items and experiences. So the A9 speaker, which for anyone who doesn't know Google it, it's a very beautiful kind of round sort of art device that you would want to have in your house. People would want to talk about it. It's not a cheap object. And what you guys have done is basically said these artists that we work with, you can, in essence, skin the speaker with the object you hold in your wallet, which I think is pretty cool. So it turns it into even more of a limited edition art object itself. And you even mentioned, I think, when we were talking about this earlier, that just in the time of when you released the project to now, there's already been kind of a product price increase. So the holders actually get this at a value. Today, it's still an expensive object. Let's not kid ourselves. But it is the kind of thing that I think, starts to create that opportunity for people come to my home, they see this thing, it creates conversation. People want to know what it is, why it exists. You get to play them your favorite, you know, audio coming out of it. But are you seeing, as you think about the future of what B&O is going to work on, just the idea of more of these limited sort of more experiential opportunities to have physical objects in your home, but also come to the store, meet artists, have art on your walls that reflects your personality. How
0: do you see that evolving? Definitely. And, um, We have lots of good discussions on how to take this further and sort of the ability to also airdrop specific items or music experiences to our holders beyond the physical product that's coming now, um, small detail, you can have your wallet address or domain engraved also sort of to give it that complete personal belonging. Then we've seen that the artists we're working with, they've also provided complimentary experiences to the community, latest Thomas Lin decided to take the algorithm he created for his artwork being a generative artist he actually said hey i created this algorithm i am going to provide every holder of my art vial a um, unique item from this algorithm and that happened last week which is amazing and it's on thomas's own initiative and um, of course endorsed by us i expect you know more to happen here and of course we will have our first group of holders We will ensure there's uh, special experiences for them and also complimentary offerings that are unique for them. And I think it's really only the, the imagination that will put a limit to what that could be. It's less about price for us here. It's more about creating something that's unique. And that's also what the typical Bang & Olufsen customer is looking for. So, yeah, it's super exciting. And actually, this product, we will, you know, make available for ETH purchase, which is the first product that you can buy in crypto from Bang & Olufsen. And that's happening because we have our treasury team will use chain analysis to basically check the wallets that will be transferring money to us here, right? So it's all coming together. You know, I think there's a lot of brands that
1: are starting to think of just accepting crypto, right? We accept crypto for people to buy tickets to Consensus, our big event. But I think the idea of, again, thinking about security at every layer, even just the idea of a brand accepting crypto, they should be thinking, it sounds like, that not all funds are the same when it comes to crypto. Is that the right read?
2: Well, I think you want to understand the customers that you're dealing with. So in the traditional sense, if someone's walking into the store and swiping a credit card, built into that payment processing transaction layer is analysis related to fraud, you know, detecting if the card is stolen. All of those things happen and we don't really think about it on the Visa MasterCard network with credit cards in crypto we're still building all of that out so whether it's fraud or stolen funds or some other thing that would you know potentially prevent you from interacting with a potential customer you know we're kind of building that as the ecosystem grows and the adoption happens here the good news is i think you know for many people who are thinking about accepting crypto is there's great payment services out there that you can just use off the shelf so that's a kind of an easy button path coinbase commerce MoonPay, BitPay, all of these folks have been operating for a long time. What I find fascinating is where Bang & Olufsen's made the decision to really own their entire stack here. And I think it's an interesting reflection on the DNA of the company that I think gives you more control, more opportunities for choice and really understanding the ecosystem. And when you go down that path, then having technology like Chainalysis becomes a necessary part of the tech stack in order to protect the institution. and. You know, ward off any bad actors that might be trying to abuse the platform.
1: I did notice when I sort of was analyzing the different collections that were released with BNO, you know, it started with one. And then, Christopher, as you mentioned, there's this art vial and this music vial, like you kind of evolve the project. There's very few of them listed on secondary market. People seem to want these and keep them and hold them, uh, appreciate both the art aspect, I think, and the redemption aspect within the physical. But I do think the question of secondary market, that once the first sale is done, If these are tradable on OpenSea, then are you sort of having to let the reins loose a little bit more when it comes to this? So maybe starting with you, Ian, is there a best practices to think about the secondary market for these? Or at that point, is the genie out of the bottle a little bit and you have to just trust that people are kind of being the best people they can be on the marketplace?
2: Well, the good news that I would share here is most of the major marketplaces are very reputable businesses in and of themselves. I went and did some analysis looking basically for money laundering to the top three nft platforms and when we looked back at the full year of 2022 it was less than a million and a half usd in terms of value combined across the top three platforms and these are billion dollar marketplaces right that's right if we think about the total volume of trades that happened across the top three marketplaces last year this is a fraction of a percent And it's actually down in 2023, although some of that is influenced by the overall pullback in asset prices and trading volumes. So I think there's a bit of a misnomer. You know, when people think about high-end art, it's often, you know, a running joke that that's how the rich and famous launder money. NFTs are somewhat different in that, you know, art, once I bought a painting, I can hang it on the wall in my house. I can put it in a box and ship it around the world. And it's fairly easy to do that without people noticing it. It's actually much less traceable than even traditional money. NFTs are the opposite. Every single transaction is on chain, even when moving through a marketplace. And so it's very straightforward to establish provenance and previous ownership of the artifact. And so it actually is much less good than a uh, physical art object, I think, for this purpose of money laundering. So we're not seeing that. I will say that there's quite a bit of wash trading activity. Some of the fee structures in certain marketplaces actually encourage this to a degree, I think, which is an attempt to boost transaction volume and engagement. It's a bit of a growth hacking tactic. We've also seen some people who, in some cases, hard to totally understand the motivation, maybe tax loss harvesting, where they're kind of selling it back to themselves. But the examples of truly illicit activity happening here is relatively low compared to some of the other sectors that we look at.
1: And Christopher, just to wrap this up, from a brand perspective, if I have a Soho House membership, I can't go and just sell that to Ian directly and maybe, you know, I was accepted and he wasn't, right? So as a brand, when you think of a secondary market, and I mean, you mentioned the eBay or the fact that people sell or reselling refurbished, you can't even buy enough of them to refurbish them yourselves, is part of the idea from a B&O perspective is that if people want the objects, let them have the objects and that brings in a new customer? Or is there any kind of brand curation that says we kind of want this you know, demographic to be the ones who are collecting? How do you look at a secondary market
0: transaction? So basically the secondary market for us allows the DNA token holder to find that piece of music or that art skin that you did not get and trade your way to the object you would desire. And then what we learned is that while there are trading platforms for that, actually, you know, community via Discord sort of connected and have been exchanging between them. So a lot of it stayed within the community. Yeah, that's really our key take on the secondary market.
1: Yeah, I've spoken to everyone, you know, even from the collectible watch category to the collectible wine category that are all looking at this kind of tokenization of real world assets, but especially around resale, which I think is a really fascinating one because you can validate provenance and then it now has a certificate of authenticity that might not have been issued when you first got it, which I think is also really fascinating. Ian, we'd like to wrap up with what are the lessons people can take away? So in our final few minutes, could you give us, you know, are there two or three points that you think of a brand entering the Web3 space should consider before they come to market from kind of the perspective of what chain analysis does and how you can kind of best protect the brand from future harm?
2: Absolutely. I think it's easy to get very excited about the art or the tokenization of the real world asset, right? That's the fun part of the project. But I think it's also important to remember that there needs to be a cybersecurity part of the program. There needs to be a you know, a financial analysis and protection part of the program, and so those second two parts are just as important as the first. How are we going to accept funds? Are we actually going to own and operate the smart contracts ourselves? Like these are technically complex, easy to do poorly or wrong, and lead to disastrous results. And so this is where chain analysis can absolutely help a firm kind of walk through the learning process and the execution. I think if you invest equal time into the building of the collectible itself and the other areas, there's opportunities for huge success and terrific projects to come out of it. Amazing. All right.
1: Ian Andrews from Chainalysis, Christopher Polson from Bang & Olsen. Thank you both for coming on Gen C. It was a fascinating conversation. I think it's an area we don't frankly spend enough time in, is thinking about kind of the security layer. So you've helped, I think, educate me and hopefully our audience on that. And Christopher specifically, congrats on the collection. It looks beautiful. Really excited to see what you guys do with it. I think it was a really sort of wonderful, innovative approach to looking at both how you can kind of raise the profile within a new segment, as well as I love the kind of the artists, you know, Siobhan's amazing, Thomas is amazing, Hakatau, Rack, you know, all of these folks that you guys have been involved with. It's really uh, wonderful to watch. So we look forward to seeing more. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thank you.